All right, friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr. You're listening to episode 119 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. It's the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning into this episode and I hope you enjoy it. So as regular listeners of the show will know, traditionally, I've always been pretty scathing about people doing podcasts by Skype or Zoom for reasons that I've gone over at perhaps tedious length, mainly mainly the fact that the sound is always shy. It doesn't lend itself to a properly revealing conversation. But obviously, right now, needs must. And I've obviously had to have a bit of a rethink. So in the end, I thought, fuck it, if I'm going to spend the next few months doing them by Zoom, let's do it properly by making sure they sound good. And also, let's start trying to tick off some of those guests that have been on the list for a while. One of whom was this week's guest, Colin McLeod. Now, if you don't know Colin... He's a musician, a crofter, a gilly, a phrase we'll get into during our conversation, and a surfer from the Western Isles in Scotland who's been quietly carving out one of the most successful careers in British guitar music over the last few years. I'm talking supporting Robert Plant appearances on the James Corden show levels of success really. Now I originally had big plans to head up to Lewis in the Western Isles this coming September for a bit of a holiday really because as you're also going to hear it's a pretty appealing sounding place that I've been meaning to visit for a long time. And on that trip, I was hoping to get Colin on the show. But, you know, God knows when that's going to be on the cards. So I decided to just get him on now, really, as the perfect road test for this new era. And also, I thought it'd be nice to have some live music on the show. I mean, it has been a while, eh? Probably my episode with Shambles McGoldrick a few years ago when I last had somebody performing on the show. Now, I'd never actually met Colin before doing this episode, but I had a feeling we'd get on. For a start, we've got a lot of friends in common, not least recent guests Mike Lay and Chris McLean. And then I've been watching his 4pm Instagram live appearances since this whole thing kicked off. And he's one of the few people who've actually managed to make that format work. I'm talking from experience there. Every day at 4pm British time, Colin clocks into Instagram Live and he plays a few songs for people. That's it, really. But the thing is, he's as dry as a bone and he's a brilliant performer. So from that, I kind of had a feeling this one would be a great conversation. And I was right, recorded this one on the very balmy Good Friday we had this year with the dog on the bed. He is there right now. Hello, Peg and a can of weird 5.8 grape IPA on the go. Thank you to my colleagues who bought me that. And a very enjoyable, thoughtful and meandering conversation it turned out to be. It's actually kind of fun doing him this way, I've realised. And I'm getting... I have done a few over Skype and Zoom over the years. Now, obviously, it's a very different kind of conversation when you're not face-to-face. And then when you've got the slightly laggy internet as well. You do have to approach them a bit differently. You need to be a bit slower paced to ensure you capture these nuances over the airwaves. So that's what I tried to do. I think it worked very well. And as I say, at the end, Colin played me a song, which was bloody lovely. So make sure you stick around for that. I'll be back at the end for more of the usual housekeeping corner. But here's me and Colin. Enjoy. as well record the preamble while we're at it that looks good that's got some audio coming through it i can't hear myself but that's probably for the best it's quite weird that isn't it because that's what yeah. i find doing this because usually i can hear myself and um, when you do them and you can't it's definitely pretty odd 
but yeah, this is the new weird times we're living in. Well, indeed, it's a flipping crazy old time. I t- I keep I keep forgetting about it because I'm so isolated anyway. And like I live on an island, and then also at this time you're all me and my dad are all, always lambing. So right, you, you feel a bit like you're on lockdown during that anyway. I don't see anybody for four weeks. I'm sleeping in a barn or whatever. Right, in and out of the house, just go from like t- what twenty yards from the back of my door to where the sheep are for right. months, and that's it. So I don't think it's really sunk in yet. I don't think till all this is over, it'll really kick in. I suppose. I think that's how everyone's feeling, though, isn't it? Because I I occasionally have little moments where because i've kind of got into a routine pretty quickly i think because mm. i actually really like routines personally yeah. you know i quite like this sort of right get up at this time do a bit of exercise do this do that i've kind of realized as i've got older that sort of suits me mm-hmm. and um and then occasionally though i'll be like actually this is really weird like i was walking you know i said i was going to take the dog for a walk yeah and um in the town where i live which is just outside brighton it's still pretty busy you know, mm-hmm. like there's still a lot of people on the high street and stuff. And, and you know, you're now doing that thing where you're having to do these really sort of circuitous walks, like crossing pavements. Everyone's kind of getting used to it. Yeah. But it's definitely odd. And I, I think like you say, when, when it's over or even as we get more used to it, everyone's going to be a bit like, oh, yeah, that was actually really full on. Yeah, yeah, totally. My friends are all struggling a bit with not surfing. I think it's been like a couple of weeks now, so it's starting to kick in a little bit. My pal was just texting me there. He's he's walking his kid on the beach, and he's like, "Why, why, why can't I go surfing?" It's like I don't know. I don't make the rules. <laughs> you can't. Is, are people st- are people still getting in then? Because you said it's been good, right? It has been good. Nobody's been in. Nobody. Really? So everyone's yeah. adhering to it. They're. Um, I I'm not in contact with the guys on the other side of the island. There's a few of them that live like right on the wave right on the waves um but uh no none nobody none no, none of my pals i know have been so. right that's good so everyone's yeah because i don't think that's the case everywhere is it there's no. uh there's debates raging on uk surfing social media i've seen oh yeah you know <laughs> it's kicking that because it, well it has been quite good hasn't it and i think i think it's one of the areas where it's not been like hugely clear for people has it you know no, well, I guess so. I mean, I can see why people are kind of get a bit sort of frustrated with it all. Because you've seen guys cycling in big gangs down the road. And yeah, you're like, well, I'm just going to toddle off on my own for a surf. And here it literally is, you know, this time of year, there's no one, there's no tourists, there's no traveling surfers really around until Easter holidays usually. Right. So you are surfing on your own. You're not surfing with anybody else. So yeah. I think people are struggling with it a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I'm a little bit... I got this weird thing about like, I kind of like limiting yourself sometimes. And once people say you can't do that for a while, I'm like, all right, cool, I'll do that. Just to try it, just to have a different... Yeah. Have to do different stuff. Yeah, there's lots to be said for that, I think. To, to sort of, yeah, limit yourself in some way. There's lots to be said for that in creativity as well, I think. You know, with... Uh, like in inhibiting or not even purposefully inhibiting but if you've got a limited setup like what what can you come up with absolutely there's, yeah there's so, a lot to be said for that so how far because it's barvas right is that how you say it? i've never been up there so yeah the, well i live in um point which is uh just it's a peninsula just out from the main town stornoway on yeah. the east coast of the island um 
and Barvis is the, on the west coast. That's where my wife's from, and uh, so I I spend kind of half my year in Barvis and half my year in my house in Point because I I spend half the year living in a green bus, right, on the on the west side of the island. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a loose guide to the geography of the Isle of Earth. And what that's because of. So you, you you live in this side of the island when you've got the like the like you said it's lambing season now. So is that linked to the work that you're doing basically? No, I well I live here, but in the summer for for years I've done um, gamekeeping in Gillian. Um, ah, okay. On the side, um, so I I do a little bit of um, Gillian. Not really Gillian actually. It's more like uh, kind of housekeeping. I I look after this little river. Uh, in the summer to stop people poaching and to take people fishing occasionally and um yeah so I, I spend my summer doing that when i'm not on tour so what i mean i've got an idea what gillian is but there's quite a lot of americans listening to this so uh-huh. might be worth explaining what what that actually means it's a very specific scottish um word and role right it is. It's kind of a universal rule, but it's the Scottish word for it. It's in America. I think it's the the equivalent would be guiding. Um, uh, it's basically it's a mixture between uh, caretaking salmon rivers and um, taking people fishing and showing them how to fly fish and things like that. So it's uh, it's the word gilly is definitely a Scottish word, and it's a bit of a hangover from edwardian times i think the gilly would be the the gentleman's gentleman it was called yeah uh, right basically go out in the hill with the old boys right so did you get into that when you were a kid mm-hmm. that was my my first kind of job actually it was my that's what i wanted to do when i was younger when i was in school i was going to be a gamekeeper go and take people fishing and i got into music through parties when i was a a gamekeeper basically right. somebody had somebody had to play the tunes so i started playing guitar to play some tunes at the parties right so yeah but yeah i did that from when i was about 15 uh through until i moved to london and then i've done it on and off since just kind of uh whenever i can i love it it's a really nice thing to do and it's a great it's just my kind of my my favorite lifestyle i suppose just being out and about on the hills and yeah it sounds like it sounds pretty idyllic so you know like a nice nice split so you do that for half the year well so you split between what you're doing now and is that crofting what you're doing now yeah crofting that's um that's not really a job as such that's kind of more it's it's a little bit like self-sufficient farming but subsistence farming is the farm the croft? Is that is yes. or the land? The land is the croft. Yeah, yeah. Croft's basically a small farm. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, and have you always lived on where you are now? Yeah, always in the same village. My mum and dad lived two doors down. The house I grew up in is two doors down, and uh, yeah, I I mean I've I dotted around a little bit when we were younger. My mum's from just outside Glasgow originally, so we lived there when I was younger. And uh, for for about four or five years, and every single day I lived there, I asked when we were going to move home to Lewis. <laughs> and then I lived in London for a couple of years. I can't really remember how long it was exactly. Two, three years. But never, always one foot in home. I've I've never really 
had much desire to live anywhere else other than for a purpose really right so what's so what's the kind of routine on the croft like then because you when when we were chatting earlier you said oh we had a you know a lamb born this morning so and you you said it's lambing season so what yeah how's it how's it play out it's um it's kind of seasonal the this is the really busy time so every year i sort of have a little block off in my music calendar and just says lambing and everybody thinks it's hilarious um (laughs) so basically for like one month of the year it's really intensive and it's and it's um all the sheep are in and you have to look after them and then uh for the majority of the rest of the year it's it's um they're pretty self-sufficient we kind of do general kind of uh animal husbandry and taking care of them and keeping an eye on them but our sheep are um are, are are spend most of their year on the moor so they're pretty self-sufficient really so how long does the lambing season last uh usually about four weeks okay yeah. is that pretty in... pretty busy yeah we're not too bad i mean i don't know if there's anyone listening to this is that's an actual farmer they'll probably scoff when i say i've only got 30 sheep but it's enough for me yeah, and it's like my friend that lives over in Sutherland. I think he's got four hundred. He's lambing, so right. I've got I got off pretty easy. But yeah, but we are we're just a small we're just a small farm, and uh, it's just for ourselves. It's just for our own freezer, as it were. So yeah, right, like the self sufficiency thing that you're talking about, basically. It's a real traditional Isla Lewis way of life. It's um, the people would always have this sort of part-time job alongside their croft uh traditionally it would be like weaving or fishing or something like that or, or gillian in the summer um and then alongside that you would you, you you cut peat for your for your heating and your hot water and you keep animals uh on your little croft you grow vegetables turnips potatoes whatever there's not a lot that really grows very well up here but that's that is the kind of that's the traditional crofting lifestyle. And I've always been interested in it since I was young. So when I had the chance to kind of do it, I, I decided I decided I would uh, get stuck in. That's a really lovely thing to be that um, connected to the traditions of where you live. That's pretty rare, isn't it, I think, these days? Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, when I was in school, it was like uh, oh, an- anathema. Is that the right word? It's like people... Just like, no way. I'm not. Yeah. You know, you got supermarkets and you can put oil in your tank or whatever. And, you know, why would you go all that effort to get stuff that you can just kind of snap your fingers and get? Yeah. But people, but people, people's minds and, and, and perceptions of the world have changed so much in the last 10 years. I think now people see the, the real benefit in it. Yeah. I think people would be really envious of it, especially now, especially like you say given the fact that you're basically set up for the situation that most people are having to adapt to right now. If anyone's really envious, they can come and stand in the croft in the rain in April when they're lambing and I'll go to bed though. I'm quite happy to switch (laughs) switch that over. (laughs) And you're doing your four o'clock Instagram live stuff, aren't you? Yeah. So, and how's that been going? It's fun. It's really fun. Um, Yeah, it looks, I've been checking into a few of them. It looks, it looks fun. It looks pretty Looks like you've got a good good bit of patter going on with everyone. Oh, yeah, it's a banter. I like it. I mean, I, I do a lot of solo gigs and I really enjoy that thing of of just 
kind of having a muck about and having a laugh and, and yeah. chatting with people. And on Instagram, it feels even more loose. Uh, you could just, yeah, it's like, and, and it's the same people come back each day and it's quite a nice thing to do. I never really embraced the whole live session thing before, but I'm really enjoying it. It's great. Yeah, I've been doing some Instagram live stuff and it is, I, I know what you mean about the looseness of it because it is, it's pretty, it's just quite ramshackle, isn't it? The format and it, you know, it drops out and sometimes you, I've been doing interviews, sometimes you can't hear people and yeah, I've been, I've been enjoying it. It's been good. Like just to, just to sort of have a format, which is a bit all over the place really, but it's quite a folky tradition, isn't it? The sort of troubadour stand up, you know, be on stage with a guitar tell a few jokes have the pat have have the patter yeah it's quite it's quite a tradition isn't it it is a tradition and you know there's a real um there's a real thing in scotland as well about if you're a musician and you're standing up there you've got to have some chat you've got to have yeah. some jokes like you know everybody's sort of enthralled to billy Connolly with a banjo and that sort of glasgow scene and you'd be like you got to be able to give as good as you get on stage. So, yeah, it's good fun. And I'm like that that uh, that thing is kind of kind of seeping over into digital life now. It's quite fun. It's good. Yeah. So is, has it affected your plans musically? Because you've got a record that you finished, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just about there. Um Yes, it has. I think uh, we were planning on having something out this summer, uh, but that's just kind of all getting pushed back now. So um, probably the new year now for the record. Right. Yeah, that's the plan. So I just signed a new with a new label. So there's all that kind of... It all takes time anyway. So it wasn't going to be until the autumn anyway, but now it'll probably be a couple more months. So... And who's the who's the label? They're called So. Um, they're based in London, and uh, they're they're really nice. Uh, the guy wooed me with like twenty five year old whiskey in Glasgow one night. So, right, that was it. You know, I can and I'd do anything for a twenty five year old <laughs> Glenn Livett. <laughs> Does that feel like quite a surreal thing, going from? Because that's one of the. You know, there seems to be definitely a bit of incongruity to like, you know, the the craft and then the music, which is a pretty glib observation, but one that's worth making anyway. You know, do you find do you find it a bit ridiculous those being in those situations, or can you just enjoy them? You know, the schmoo the schmoozy A and R guy getting the twenty five year old whiskey out. You know, so there's something quite, you know, funny about that. And and that's pretty easy to send up, right? That whole oh thing. yeah, it is. It's a it's um it's a funny old world. I have always felt a little bit uh, disconnected from it, um. But you know, I I think it's just that thing. It's like oh, like I I used to think there was no connection between my life here and then what I do for a job, um. But then as as the older I've got, I've realised that. The thing that everyone's interested in and the thing that makes my music and the thing that gives me inspiration is the place I'm from. So when I meet all these people or you go to some weird fancy party or some, you know, thing, whatever it is, 
all people want to talk about is is crofts and sheep and and <laughs> moors and fishing and you know can you take me salmon fishing like it's all comes back to the same thing you know it's like it's kind of funny you go there thinking everybody's going to be talking business and shop and all the rest of it and all they want to talk about is uh do you have any pictures of cute lambs you know it's kind of funny did that did that take you a while to because i guess when you're starting out in a in a world like that you know the music industry but it, it must be quite hard hard to step into and have confidence because it's such a foreign world whoever you are and wherever you come from really you know it's like this big edifice isn't it that that you feel i'm assuming you must feel like you need to sort of make your way in and you know is it have you have you moved on from when you started out to be to being a bit more comfortable with that if you know what i mean like the fact that actually it's fine the work you know the fact that you're not really part of that world and you can be yourself with what you're doing yeah, I think I've always I've always taken it with a pinch of salt, which seems quite funny. Even when I was I was quite young when I um, got signed in the first instance, I was um, I signed a development deal with Universal Publishing. I don't even think such a thing exists anymore. Is that so, where they basically give you a bit of cash and say go write an album kind of thing? Yeah, and there was a bunch of people. Um, Dougie Bruce was the name of the guy that signed me, and he had. Uh, he had previously, I think the, the, the like two or three months before he signed Adele to the, uh, one of these development deals and, and she'd obviously got snapped up pretty quick and done really well. Even at that stage, she was doing really well. So um, so he was uh, given a little bit of leeway to sign this kind of guy the, from the middle of nowhere singing about boats. Um, <laughs> so I think, so I've always felt like I kind of sneaked in the back door somehow Um which is kind of nice because uh, you you always get to. I've always felt like a little bit of an observer. I've I, I've somehow managed to, you know, be in this business for ten, twelve or so years, whatever, however long it is, uh, and do what I want to do, and not really feel any weight of expectation. I think it's quite a rare thing. Um, Sounds pretty rare. Yeah. And I've, and I've, uh, you know, there is always, it's a business like any other business. So there's, there's, you know, there's, there's facts and figures and numbers and quotas and all these kind of things. But I just seem to have managed to, to kind of skip by it all and, and make a wee career path for myself, which has suited me and suited my lifestyle. So I've never really felt any expectation i've never felt any pressure i've just sort of enjoyed it for what it is and, and felt quite thankful for the whole thing so uh, so you never got any pressure put on you to to conform to any particular path no because on paper um, you know like all right so i'm gonna okay i'll sign a record deal but i'm gonna need two months off in the spring and six months off in the summer and autumn to 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 go back to Lewis mm -hmm. and then I'll do music the other six months a year. It doesn't sound like the easiest sell well, on paper. Yeah, I've, I've never really... Oh, well, you know, music music is my job, so everything else has to kind of bend around that a little bit. And like with my croft, I'm lucky that my dad lives next door and he has, he's a crofter too, so he looks after the sheep when I'm not here. And, um, you know, I... I do things at home when I can, but if if I'm away for six months of the year touring, then that's just the way it is. But I, 
I think I get a little bit of disp- like I think I get a little bit of leeway with the fact that people want me to do these things because they see that it bleeds into the music and I don't I wouldn't make the music I was making if they were like okay come to London for six months to write your album and like mm, then I'm going to write about being on the bus and <laughs> I'm going to write you know about yeah going to the pub too much or whatever it's 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 not the same thing so I do I guess it's that thing it's like I don't know I can't speak for the people that have signed me but I do get that impression that they've signed me because of what because of the whole thing, because of where I am and, and, and the fact that, that the community I live in and the place I live in bleeds so heavily into the music that they give me that sort of little bit of leeway. So it sounds like that was from the start then. So you said you picked up a guitar locally at parties. So I'm assuming there's a pretty strong, equally strong musical tradition on the island as well. Yeah, very strong. A really strong traditional music scene and also um, a really kind of overly talented pool for the size of the community as well. There seems to be just a massive glut of talent in the islands and the highlands as well, especially. It just seems to really produce talented people. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's a very supportive community as well, like musicians and that. Everybody's... Uh, Everybody's really kind of communal and gets together and uh, plays a lot together. That was really formative for me as well with playing because we used to play in the pubs every weekend, Friday, Saturday night, every week we would play covers in the pub. Right. And that and that was how I basically cut my teeth. And like by the time I got to London when I was twenty one years old, I felt like I'd been touring for four years because I'd played, you know, whatever a hundred gigs a year for four years. So right. So what made you first pick up a guitar? Uh, girls, probably. <laughs> the classic. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. I could, I could waffle on about some whimsical story about the nature and blah, blah. Nah, girls. To impress girls. <laughs> Good. Did it work? Yeah, so-so. Um, yeah, you know, you think that girls are like super into guys playing in the pub. On a Saturday night, the guy, the guys certainly think that that's what the girls are into, especially yeah. at that age. And then, then they realise that actually, they probably weren't really. <laughs> yeah. And then you realise when you're standing up there playing guitar that the guy that's down there without the guitar is chatting up that girl that you're trying to impress playing guitar. When you can't leave because you're singing a song, and you're like, oh well, it kind of defeats the purpose. But yeah, so that was that was the first instance. And what music we what music were you inspired by? Because obviously, you know, you're clear, evidently a guitar geek from the way that you play and mm-hmm. and the music that you make um so i'm guessing that you grew up pretty influenced in some way or another all guitar stuff heavy heavy heavily into like uh, original kind of rock bands of the 60s and 70s like led zeppelin and the who and all that kind of stuff early on a lot and then um from a writing point of view, I think the biggest inspiration is probably Bob Dylan and Neil Young on that stage. I was obsessed with Bob Dylan when I was 18, 19. Um, a girl, another girl I was trying to impress, told me um, that, that she thought Masters of War was the best song ever written. 
I mean, Bob Dylan she, song. She, she's she's kind of got a point. Yeah, yeah. It is is up there. And how old was he when he wrote that? 18 or something? Oh, yeah. Fucking mental. 12. (laughs) Who knows? And uh, so I I, I remember buying the freewheeling to to listen to Masters of War. But the song before it was Girl from the North Country. I was going to say Girl from the North Country. Did you you learn it and play it to her? (laughs) (laughs) No, she, she fell by the wayside very shortly after that. But uh, but that song in particular, that one song was just like the catalyst in my mind for writing songs. I was like, I want to write a song that's as good as that. And, you know, I will be trying to do that for the rest of my days, probably. It's a masterpiece. Well, it but- still sounds amazing as well. Like, I, I listened to that fairly recently, and considering the fact it's obviously like one mic and, you know, one take, it... it it's it sounds pretty amazing, despite the fact that the song is also absolute genius. It's incredible. I mean, one mic, in fairness, isn't the best microphone ever made by man, but um, but yeah, it's just so off the cuff and so raw, and you couldn't ever imagine it being any other way. It's incredible, amazing song. So yeah, so that that's I could probably narrow it down to that one song. That was my biggest inspiration when I was younger. And did you start writing straight away? Yeah, yeah, straight away. I started. Um, we had, uh, I think, we had like a poetry competition and in, in uh, sixth year English, and I basically just started rewriting Bob Dylan songs for this for this poetry competition, and that sort of got my mind ticking over. And and then after a while of doing that, I started. You make that jump from Bob Dylan to Bruce Springsteen, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, Bruce, that's the one." And I felt a real connection with Bruce because he was singing about his hometown, and 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 he was singing about the same things that I would, I knew, and and the same people that that were around me. But he made the really kind of mundane sound so romantic and incredible and musical, like somebody fixing a car. I can't ever imagine you know writing a beautiful song about somebody fixing a car and he would do that so and i would see those same characters in my town that he would sing about in his song so that was a huge inspiration too and i think that's that inspiration's kind of carried me through i'm not a great consumer of new music i'm i'm pretty uh i'm pretty happy with the classics and i sort of stick with that so you like the storytelling element you like you know Obviously, music is one thing, but you, it sounds like the lyrics are important. Yeah, the music's the music's the thing, definitely. The music's always comes first, but uh, the stories are um, my favourite form of conveying music, definitely. And how did you find that when you were learning to write? Is that something that you felt like you had an affinity towards, or? Yeah, I tried. I mean, I think. When I started writing, I was always trying to um, to hide what I was trying to say because there was a bit of a uh, I had a bit of a fear of people knowing too much about me or knowing too much about what I was saying. So yeah, was, that's like a confidence thing, isn't it? To yeah, yeah, for co- sure. to try and code it. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, so I so I would start writing something that was really sort of kind of bare bones and honest and then I would start warping it a little bit to the point where it become pretty unrecognizable 
and I don't think it was until I did my first album on was when I did my development deal with Universal that I think somebody else had called me. One of the writers I was working with, one of the producers I was working with, had called me out on it and said, "Why don't you just, why don't you just simplify this a little bit so people know what you're singing about?" And I was like, "Yeah, what? No, no, no." He's like, "Yeah, go back and listen to Bruce Springsteen again. He'll tell you what to do." It's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> Is that hard to take when you're working with somebody? No, it's great. I loved it. It's that is how you learn. That is how you learn and grow. You know, I, I th- it's just, it seems like a funny thing to say, but I don't think there's any room for ego in songwriting. You, your your ego is your worst enemy when you're writing a song. You have to be able to, if not self-edit, then definitely be open to what your your people around you say and and what people. The feedback you get from people, you know, um, everybody works differently, and and you know, chatting about how to write a song is, let's say, there's a hundred ways to skin a cat or whatever that phrase is, you know, but um, yeah, you, I think I think you can definitely be your own worst enemy when you're writing a song, and and constructive criticism has been my best friend, definitely. Yeah. It's not, I don't think it comes that easily to everyone, though, does it? Because, like you say, it's e- it's easy to say part of your ego, but as you alluded to, so personal and such a difficult thing for people. Whatever the creative work is, really, you know, what you're talking about is creative honesty, aren't you? And how that's a necessary part of making something that's actually good, really. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's integral, isn't it? And I think the confidence thing is such a big deal for people and they're so scared about making themselves vulnerable and and also let's be honest is that girl going to think it's shit that, um, <laughs> that you know it's it's difficult for people isn't it yeah so it's it just is. quite quite interesting to hear you say that you're like embraced it you know as a as something positive straight away well I think so I think if you um, you have to see it as a positive uh, there's a thing about music that so much of it is based on uh, opinion and and critique and and review and all the rest of it and you know that stuff can drive you nuts it really can like I remember I remember waiting for my first ever reviews from magazines when I did my first album and being like just like oh man so tense about it and then you sort of have that realization. It's like it's just opinion. It's like everybody's allowed their opinion, and that's fine. And you don't have to take it all on board. But when you hear something that resonates, and you think, "Oh, that's that's something I can use to improve what I do and to grow as a songwriter," then yeah, don't be afraid of it. Definitely, it's it's a it's a positive thing for sure. So the London move was was part of the the path, as it were. Did you feel that was something you needed to do to become a musician? Because it is, again, it's, it's a bit of a trope, isn't it? You know, head to the big smoke where it all is. And do was that what was behind that? You sort of thought you'd give that a go? I did have to move to London. I think at the time, internet, well, not internet as much. Uh, social media wasn't such a massive part of what it is of music now. And um, uh, it was basically... Uh, come to London to, um, to 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 write and to record and to 
get a little bit of experience in that. And it was right to do it because, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do on an island and, and it's good to experience that. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, a very a very good thing. I'm really glad I did it. Um, but I probably uh, I'm, I'm happy now that I can live at home and still do music in the same way. And you did because that's that's part of the because like the development deal thing you said earlier is like a, it is a bit of a throwback, isn't it? And it is based around the old sort of industry model of like do a record, sell the physical record, go out, promote the record and all that. So um, did is there a path that you needed to sort of follow? Were they like setting you up with gigs and tours and kind of, you know, putting you down that road at the time? Yeah. Um, I, I, at, f- at the first instance, though, it was uh, it was all about writing and and um, getting the songs. The publishing is more about uh, the songs rather than um, like the whole kind of like touring and making a record and all that. That came afterwards, and the way it was structured was like um, would give you a year's grace, a bit of money, a bit of equipment, and you just go to different studios every day and write and learn how to write songs. It was a pretty rare thing. Um, I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to do it because I've spoken to people and I don't really know anyone else that's that's had the opportunity to do that. And the, um, well, I basically learned how to, to work in studios and how to record music and how to write, how to produce, how to do everything in a year when um, I was in my early 20s. So the experience was incredible. But through that, they would sort of, you would amass uh, kind of an album's worth of songs, was the idea. And then um, you would get signed to a label. They would sort of partner you with a label and get you signed up. It was like a, it was like a fast track into the record industry. So um, so yeah, that was that was my first taste of music industry and I thought wow this is easy I'll just do this <laughs> little did I know yeah so did is that what happened you got the you got the deal after that yeah I signed with Geffen um at the end of that year about a year and a half and made an album under the name of the boy who trapped the sun um and uh that uh I think that album came out in about 2010 um, but even at that stage, I was fairly self-sufficient in the process. Like I'd written songs on my own. I'd written some songs with friends. And when it came to doing the album, I, was, I, I, like, I went to my manager and said, um, can I just go for a week with my, two weeks with my friend in his studio and just make it? And they said yes. And I can't even imagine why they would say yes. If if I was an A&R guy at a label and a 20-year-old said that to me, I'd be like, no, absolutely not. You can't do that, you maniac. Well, you'll have a, you'll have someone supervising you. But they said yeah. And um, it was it was great. So I went in and, and kind of me and my friends made it in two weeks. And, and I turned it into them and they were like, we love it. Let's go. So that's been the process ever since. I do a lot by myself and then go in the studio with friends and and make it and is that some of the friends that you grew up playing with that you were talking about earlier from the island no it's all friends i've made through music um the 
producer friends, guys, guys that with with a lot of experience that I've I've kind of met over the years and become good pals with and and sort of worked with. Um, I do. Uh, the guys in my band are all pals from home that I've played with for years. That's nice. And is that is that how it's been all the way through? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, a lot. A lot of the time, I've been on my own. I've done a lot of touring on my own. But whenever I do have a band, it's always been friends and guys I've been. Mardo, my drummer, uh, we were in school together. We've played together since we were 15. So Ah, that's great. Yeah. And then the last one, it seemed to kick off a bit from what I could see. You know, gigs with Robert Plant, Tonight yeah. Show in the States, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it did. It's, um, it, it, was, it was ramping up a little bit. It's kind of, it was, it was a little bit unexpected, actually. Really? But, yeah, well, I thought it might get a nice response. Um, the guy that produced the album was very well known. Um, Who's that? He's he's called Ethan Johns, um, and he produced uh, Ryan Adams and um, Paul McCartney and Tom Jones, and like he's made some really classic records. Uh, so I knew there would be a little bit of interest from from his connection with it, but I didn't quite expect. Uh, the the kind of response it did get so yeah i mean it's interesting so he because he did you know you mentioned like tom jones and i mean he did fucking paul mccartney right yeah did, did like the, did, did the kings of leon record didn't he and he did the first four kings of leon records i think yeah he's a bit of a safe pair of hands i imagine i must he's... have been amazing to work with him though yeah it was incredible it was really incredible he's been a bit of a hero um I remember actually getting Heartbreaker, the um, Ryan Adams album, um, and seeing his name, Ethan Johns. And then oh, I've got another album, it's Ethan Johns. And then what was the other one? Ray Lamontagne, Ethan Johns. Who the flick is Ethan Johns? Who is this guy? Yeah. And I heard about his dad, Glenn, and, and I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, like he's like the flipping rock star of producers from a lineage of incredible producers. And then. I heard he was coming to play in Stornoway, so I begged, borrowed, stole. I've not. I just did everything I could to get the support, so I could go and hang out and say, "Hey, I love your work." And then we 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 get, we got on really good, and and I went on did a little tour with him, and we became pals, and then um, it came to doing the record, and I, my manager I had a new manager at the time, and. She was like, have you got any ideas for who you'd like to produce your record? And I was like, well, I thought I might give Ethan a call and see if he's up for it. And she was like, Ethan Johns. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I like, kept that one quiet. I was like, oh, well, you know, just see what he says. And he was like, sure, yeah, come on down. We'll make your album. And that was that. So is he, where's he based? He is uh, not far from Bath. Oh, he's in the UK? Yeah. All right, for some reason was, I assumed he'd be in like Nashville or something. He was in LA for years, um, and then he he moved back home. I, I, I'm not entirely sure when, but um, his kids aren't that old, and I think it's about the time his kids started school, so like seven, eight to ten years ago, I think something like that. Right. But it was um, that was that was a pretty incredible experience. We made the album at Real World. It's Peter Gabriel Studios. So it's a bath. And um, yeah, that was just 
like that was a geek's dream that recording session i bet it's like brought in a brought in a box of mics he's like oh i've, oh, I've got dad's mics like, <laughs> what he's like ah oh, this is the this is the the 67 used on john bonham's drum kit oh here's the mic flicking robert plant used and here's the one caleb from kings of leon used and it's like all right cool better not break them then or not touch them <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah he's a lovely guy and i learned heaps like just was just was such an education to work with someone like that it was incredible so you kind of felt that association might might help give it a boost to the record yeah for sure it, it, it definitely um there's 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 definitely a level of credibility that you get from when somebody gives you a pat on the back like that says I think this guy is good enough to produce his album. So um, yeah. there was a bit of kudos there and, and it got us, uh, well, it got me a new record deal, basically, having him produce the album. Um, and then it got some really good reviews and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, only so, it's only so far that someone else's kind of, um, someone else's, what do you call it? push yeah like the association yeah it's got it's it's got a little bit but obviously it has to be good doesn't it well it's got to stand on its own legs in the first place yeah. you know and so yeah i mean i'm not going to make you exhaustively list all the fairly mental stuff that happened but what what was the because i you know i we've never met but we have got loads of friends in common mm-hmm. and i've sort of been i actually saw you at black day a couple of years ago oh um, really yeah sunday night wasn't it um oh. and um yeah, like kind of been watching it and sort of that. Like, it's been great, like because I'm pretty good mates with Mike as well, who goes mm-hmm. on tour with you, doesn't he? Yes. Um, yeah. So and we chat. If I'd see him, we'd have a chat about it, and he'd sort of say, "Oh, you know, just supported like you know, blah blah blah." So what was the what was the highlight? Because obviously, it must have been a few sort of pinch yourself moments among all that. It was uh, it was a very very good year. There was a lot of highlights. Um, the Robert Plant gig in the O2 was was pretty special. That was amazing, um, and uh, the Late Late Show, James Corden. That was pretty funny, pretty surreal. Um, I think funny thing is though, I was I was thinking about it the other day because I've been looking back at all these old photos from the last four years, and I think the one moment that was like the biggest highlight of it was the morning after we played at. Um, on the Late Late Show, my friend picked me up at four in the morning and I went and surfed Malibu. And I was like, I was there surfing, going, what, how did I get here? Like, how has this happened? How did I, how did I manage to write a bunch of songs in my bedroom? And it's taken me halfway around the world playing on national TV and surfing at Malibu. It's, that, that was a real, that was a real special moment. That was pretty cool. Because you just never, you never think, you know, you, people dream about these things and you're like 16, you're writing songs in your bedroom. I remember having these feelings of like, imagine if one day one of these songs took me around the world to do something incredible. And it happened. And that was like, wow, that's pretty cool. So I'm glad I had that little kind of moment of clarity to appreciate it for what it was. Because it all just goes like, it's all 100 million miles an hour when it's going on. These kind of these big gigs and these big experiences it's just you'd feel like you're like watching watching it out the window of a car that's driving at 100 miles an hour 
it's only in the moments when you kind of slow down and stop you appreciate it for what it is so well yeah it must be pretty busy as well yeah you know yeah it's busy but it's just nuts it's just not normal it's just not normal hanging around with jamie lee curtis in a cbs studios in la and playing on the tv it's it's just ludicrous from a boy from the croft yeah yeah well like you say you gotta try and enjoy that and yeah mm-hmm. so you mentioned surfing should talk about that a little bit because obviously you know you as you said earlier there's a proper scene on lewis isn't there mm-hmm. you know so when did you start surfing i started surfing when i was about uh 12 13 started um bodyboarding and uh and then kind of did that for a while and I think I started getting into surfing when I was around about 18 really there wasn't uh, there wasn't like the same kind of beach culture here as I see like with kids and stuff in Cornwall we, you know the, the houses are a bit away from the sea and when we were in school we were actively discouraged from going anywhere near the sea and going in the sea to surf was like don't be an idiot you don't go in the sea. You stay away really? from the sea. Yeah. Because of, of the danger? The danger. There's a lot of superstition around the sea in Lewis. There's a lot of uh, kind of negativity from the older generation. Uh, ghost stories, superstition. Like the like the one that kind of outlines it the best is um, it was bad luck if you were a fisherman and you could swim. <laughs> like wow. that's, Yeah. And I remember an old boy was saying one time my friend was painting a boat on the ten- on the little tender beside it and he fell in and then he kind of like scrambled to get back in the boat and all the rest of it. And this old boy was standing on the pier and he said, ah, yeah, careless people, you can always spot careless people because they can swim. I was like, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, if you can't swim, you're very careful. It's like, I know there's logic in that, but it just seems ludicrous. That's mental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is... Uh... That's definitely a few mental gymnastics, isn't it? To justify not being able to swim as a fisherman, definitely. So you, did, did you, because I'm, I'm imagining the surf community up there is small, but extremely close-knit then. Yeah, very much so. It, when I started, it was really small. There was maybe four or five people that were surfing regular. Um, and now there's maybe about 40 folk or so. That, that have moved here to surf and created a little scene. Um, it's great. It's really nice. When when I left school and I decided I was going to live here, I think there was about, I was in a class of 100 in the local school and there was about 10 people stayed and everyone else left. So it has kind of rejuvenated a little bit the island and the place. It's like younger people coming in and it's been good for the island, definitely. The... And it's become more mainstream now, I think, as well. Like, was chatting with Mike about it, saying, like, it used to be a really niche thing, surfing. Like, you know, you used to see the guys coming on surf trips to Lewis 10 years ago, and they were pretty hardy, bulk. And now in the summer, it's like, there's loads of people come from all over the world to surf, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really rejuvenated the place a little bit. It makes it feel a bit more vibrant than it did, so... Everybody always says about how friendly it is up there. Yeah. That I, that for, you know, for a surf community, for a surf scene, you know, and even what you just said then makes it sound that way because you talk about it as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, generally the narrative about incoming surfers is not positive, is it? 
No, I think not. And you see, um, still, well, it's a sport, isn't it? There's a competitive element to surfing, and and you know, when people come and they're like, you know, what's that thing about you when you come into a surf place and you and you're traveling, you want to show that you know how to surf so that people will let you catch a wave. But that's like the opposite of fear. It's like don't care if you can surf or not. As if you paddle up in the lineup, and you say hi, how's it going? Nice day. Then you get a wave. It's like the opposite of other places, which is why when I used to go surfing other places, everybody used to think it was weird because I paddle straight in the middle of the lineup and go hi everybody, how's it going? Are you having a nice day? And everybody used to think I was mental. Yeah, they don't like that. <laughs> no. But it's uh, like is this is this weirdo? Yeah, pretty much. But yeah. It's changing a little bit, I think. It's I think it's only natural. The more popular something gets and and like it changes, but I think we're very, very lucky here that we get so much of the year with so few people and there are still days when you're looking around for somebody to go out paddle out with you because it's so big and you're on your own and it's a bit scary. I don't think that happens very often anywhere else. No. Do you have any particular mentors when you were growing up surfing? It's always like the local, the local sort of legend, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's a few. Uh, Roy Davidson, our tech teacher in school, he was infamous. Infamous as the man who snapped a bick at triple overhead barbeth. Uh, that's a feat, isn't it? Snapping yeah, that is, a bick. That, <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a that's a tough surfboard. <laughs> yeah, you have to put a lot of effort in. And that that was it. We 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 were all in awe of him. Uh, he's a well known character. I'm sure anyone that surfed at Barvis has seen him bombing down the biggest wave of the day, straight legged into the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, like there's this Derek Derek McLeod is a bit of a local legend. He's kind of the main guy who's been running the surf shop on the island for years and helping visiting surfers and that. So. Yeah, it's uh, it seems like it's a, it's funny here because it's like the surf scene is so infant that it's still developing these characters, and uh, and a lot of the people have have moved here. They kind of bring in that kind of kind of surf scene with them because I don't think it was here really. Um, uh, do you know what I mean? Like it's like it's 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 still developing. It's still yeah, in infant scene. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day. Um, you know, and, and we just we just didn't grow up with that culture in the UK, did we? When you kind of thirties, forties, you kind of you looked to California and maybe even to a certain extent to places as it got a bit more popular to places like Newquay or whatever as like these epicenters of you know surf culture or action sports culture or whatever but fact is it's not california is it no no you have to yeah you have to and a place like you're saying it's still it's still early days on a place like lewis isn't it mm-hmm. for the culture to develop but that's that's why that it sounds appealing i think yeah for sure and um i think well, I, I suppose a good a, a good example of it is um, I never really enjoyed surfing shortboards, um, but I didn't really know about like the other side of surfing. I didn't know about kind of 
alternative surfing or different boards or anything like that. It's like you started surfing. Okay, you're finished with that bodyboard now. You, you have a mini mile for two weeks and when you can stand up on that you get a short board and then you're a surfer okay great let's do that bang stood up on the mini mile gives a short board just like constant struggling struggling and then for years doing that and just like thinking the whole time this is that just doesn't feel right there's something about this i just don't just don't really get it and then i went on a trip i was actually playing a gig in uh the tap house in st agnes and they had Sprout playing on the um, the big screen above the bar. And it was like Joel Tudor's kind of quiver section and he's going through all his boards and he's like beautifully surfing this old Takayama longboard. And I'm like, that's it, that's the one, I wanna do that. But I had no idea about this traditional longboard scene because it was like, it's just a little scene in Lewis. And, and it's, it feels a little bit ignorant that I didn't know about that because I hadn't kind of researched it or whatever, but I just kind of stumbled across that by accident. And now that's my favourite thing, longboards. I love it. And it's kind of, that's that's my that's my surfing. That's what I like to do. But yeah, so it is, it kind of shows how kind of it is a little bit naive, but maybe that just shows my naivety a little bit more than... No, I think it's... I, I, I really like that because there's so much what you should do in these activities isn't there mm-hmm. you know you should be doing this you should be and it, I, I think it can be damaging to the enjoyment that people get out of it especially like something which is as fundamentally difficult as riding a shortboard when you when you're learning you know it's, mm-hmm. it's actually a bit of a deal breaker isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? absolutely can best be. thing you can do is put someone on a longboard yeah yeah when they're especially when they're learning because yeah. they're going to get more waves. That's for, for sure. sure. So I'm looking at the time. It's quarter to four. You've probably got to get ready for your live um, performance. Oh, yeah. But you're going to do you're going to do me a song, right? I am going to do a song. Yeah, I'll which is a, a right song. treat. I'm going to record. I'm going to record the screen if that's all right. Yeah, go for it. I've got all my uh, snazzy Croft clothes on. I look the biz. So tell me, tell me what you're going to play. Give me a bit. Give me the backstory. So this song is called Kicks In and it's off Bloodlines, the last album I did. And uh, all the songs in the album are different stories that my old neighbour told me uh, before he died. Uh, So stories that he told me and some stories of my own life as well. But um, yeah, it's basically a collection of Lewis stories kind of translated for a bunch of songs and this one's called kicks in and it's about uh not wanting to leave the island basically sweet let's hear it all right Frightened of creeping back 
so let it be known one day I will leave this place look for something wide though it's just a Oh, mate, what a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. That was That's fun. That's great. So, 
where can people hear the rest of your music then? Let's let's do the ad. Come on, let's get right. let's get let's get people directed there. <laughs> um, I do believe it's on uh, Spotify. Spotify is the best place. I think it's on iTunes, but I'm not entirely sure. Oh, I'm so bad at selling myself. I'm so bad <laughs> at it. <laughs> it's it, it's on the internet. It's on Spotify. It's stuff on YouTube. And every day at four o'clock, I'm singing uh, John Denver songs on Instagram. So come on down. Yeah, right. So you're going to keep doing that? Yeah, for sure. I'm going so, to, basic, I'm... so people can see if people go onto your Instagram, which is what, at Colin McLeod, is it? Uh, Colin McLeod Official, I think. Yeah. So if people go on there, four o'clock. Four o'clock. You take, you take a request? Yep. Fuck, I need to give you a request. Yeah, man. Get it. What, is it? Is it like literally... Uh, are you, are, you one, are you are you one of them where it's like oh what you mean this and you can just bang it out sometimes sometimes although somebody said the other day the chain by fleetwood mac i'm, like, I'm only one man on an Come acoustic on. guitar that's a tough brief Jesus. yeah yeah and then my um, friend said s club seven that's that's the bar so far s club seven that was the only one i've said no to but within reason you know grand parsons got any gram oh, in the locker yeah yeah did one of them the other day I'm yeah a huge grand parsons fan all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna tune in at four. I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly think about some gram. Nice. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna ping your request. But mate, that was brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I'll see you in ten minutes. Cool, man. So there you go. That was me and Colin. And what a lovely one that was, eh? Like I mentioned at the start, and I've mentioned at length. Um, I am doing Instagram live interviews myself, which I'm going to go into a little bit in more detail in a second. Every Sunday over at my We Look Sideways Instagram. And this coming Sunday, as I record, which will be Sunday the 19th of April, Colin's going to join me on my Instagram live. He's going to take some questions off the back of this episode and maybe even take some requests from anybody who's going to tune in. So if you fancy a bit of that and you're listening at the right time, Sunday 19th of April 2020 over at my We Look Sideways Instagram account 8pm British time you can tune in and you will find me and Colin in conversation following up on this one as ever you can find full episode show notes over at my webpage www.wearelookingsideways.com as well as any blog merchandise and a link to all the old episodes if you want to do some digging. You can also sign up to my newsletter there, which I'm sending out every couple of weeks at the minute, containing the 10 things I think are worth sharing that week. And like I say, you can buy some Looking Sideways merchandise on there as well. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, because everything I do on Looking Sideways, podcasts, blogs, live stuff, forthcoming YouTube channel, it's all free, um, but it's not free for me from the newsletter to the podcast itself. So there are there are costs involved. So every merchandise purchase or social post helps to keep it free, basically, which is why I'm always banging on about it. Because the last thing I want to do is start putting shitty ads in there or going down the Patreon route. And that is something that listeners always write to me or message me saying they're really thankful for. That it's basically totally uncommercial list. So if you want to keep it that way, and I think we probably all do, then the odd appreciative merchandise purchase, social share or review is going to go a long way. I don't think that's a bad trade-off. I think you'll agree. So what else is going on? I mentioned the other day, um, I can't even remember where now, there's so many fucking platforms at play. I'm in the middle of starting a YouTube channel and I'm currently getting my head around that. Now the idea at the moment is I'm going to put the entire archive, audio only, obviously, 
because I didn't record them. But I'm also going to put the live episodes on there with some, well, new content for YouTube. I'll keep you posted. It's going to be pretty rough and ready at first, I think. And I'm I'm going to publicly feel my way through it and see how we get on. It's not going to be a Gary V, Rich Roll, Joe Rogan, multi-camera edit fest, basically. But then that's not really my style, is it? So the idea came from doing the live stuff on Instagram, which I mentioned earlier, which has been a very enjoyable, if at times slightly stressful experience. I've mentioned this before, but while lockdown is going on, I'm doing type two live. Well, I'm doing the Sunday ones that I've just mentioned, and I'm also doing type two live with Patagonia Europe every Friday evening. And yeah, I'm just getting my head around the whole thing, which, you know, is how the podcast started out really. And it's it's been going really well, but it is pretty warts and all. You know, I think if you were going to choose the least appropriate platform through which to decide to start doing live interviews in front of an audience, Instagram Live would probably be the worst possible choice. Although thinking about it, actually, a live interview with Donna Carpenter in front of all your industry peers and also live on Facebook would probably be the least appropriate choice, but that's another story. Anyway, the point is Instagram Live has a lot of inbuilt glitches and flaws. And over the last week, I appear to have discovered them all while live on air. Still, at times like this, I do try and remember the old Nietzschean, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger vibe. And if nothing else, I'm getting a total crash course in live presenting under probably the most difficult possible circumstances, which I think is probably a good thing. You know, if you're going to throw yourself into it, you might as well get thrown in right at the deep end. And from the feedback I've been getting, people seem to be really enjoying it, which is nice. If you do want to check it out, follow me on Instagram at We Look Sideways. You know, like I mentioned, every Friday, 8 p.m. British time, every Sunday, the Looking Sideways one, which is basically me just talking to my mates. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit easier for me, that one. That's Sunday at 8 British time as well. So I'm going to treat the whole YouTube channel in the same spirit. Learning by doing, as my good friend Vernon Deck calls it. Anyway, when the YouTube stuff's ready, I'll let you know. So that's it for this week. Like I say, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it, leaving me a review and all the rest of it. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Nice one. (laughs) 